0: Hey, uh, before we get started here today, I want to thank our underwriter for this entire episode. Our underwriter today is Netflix, and specifically, one of their wonderful films that they have out right now called Mank. And I have to say, separate from the fact that they are supporting my podcast and supporting my voice out there, on a personal note, I just want to say that Mank is one of my favorite films of the year. And I mean at the top. It's rare that a film like this comes along. And of course, I find this story so enthralling because it's, it's set in 1930s in Hollywood. And the film itself, it's like taking a look at Hollywood through an entirely different lens, through the eyes of, uh, at the time, a scathing social critic, and a great screenwriter by the name of Herman J. Mankiewicz. And in the story that we see in Mank, he has been hired by Orson Welles to essentially write the screenplay for Citizen Kane. And he is under a deadline and he has to get this done with Welles essentially nowhere in sight. It's such a great story about the story behind Citizen Kane. This film, Mank, was directed by the great David Fincher, whom we all love, but the film itself, this film, Mank, was written by Fincher's late father, Jack Fincher. What an honor to his father, this movie. It stars Gary Oldman as Herman Mankiewicz and Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davies, alongside of Charles Dance, Arliss Howard, and Tom Pelfrey. And let me just say, too, each one of these actors are incredible in this film. You do, you do not watch this film and think you're watching Gary Oldman. Well, let me tell you something. Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davies is like the runaway performance of the year. And it is an entirely different Marion Davies that Mankiewicz and Wells presented in the film we know as Citizen Kane. You get, you get In this film, you get to see... The real Marion Davies that Mankowitz knew. Mank features the wonderful music of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. This film, Mank, it celebrates the art of filmmaking. And it's about taking responsibility for one's ideas, putting them out into the world, and the reality-altering power of film. So it's no surprise to me that Mank is racking up nominations on the awards circuit from places like the Golden Globes and BAFTA, Screen Actors Guild, the American Film Institute. My friends, this is really an outstanding production. So do yourself a favor and watch Mank on Netflix. I'll have a link to the film right here in the description page for this episode of Rumble. And I just want to thank Netflix for supporting my voice, supporting this podcast, and backing wonderful directors like David Fincher and making outstanding movies like Mank. Hello, everyone. This is Rumble. And I am Michael Moore. And I welcome you To today's episode, where and this will be our fourth and sadly final episode of our four-part series that we recorded last week, celebrating the twenty-five millionth download of episodes of this podcast, Rumble. Millions of you in these first fourteen months listening to this podcast, man, it's it's meant the world to me, and. It has been an incredible year, politically, culturally, and sadly, with this pandemic. So anyways, tonight, we're going to have three people who have participated in Rumble in its first year. You're going to hear from each of them, and I think that, oh my God, there's just so much so much going on this week. This is the week, for many of us, we went into lockdown a year ago this week. I'll talk a bit about that on a later episode here in the coming week. And what I'm doing, what I'm able to do now, uh, what I'm planning to do. But this continues to be a difficult time for a lot of people. But it's also a time of hope for people who are getting their shots and for the work that we're all doing to encourage our fellow citizens to wear their masks, to keep their social distance, to open up the windows and let the fresh air in, and to use this time to think about how we're going to come out on the other end of this pandemic, how we're going to be a better people, a better country, a better planet. That I have so much hope for, and I look forward to discussing that with you over the coming days and weeks. But without further ado... She has been a guest on Rumble. I have been a guest on her podcast. She is the co-host with Matt Taibbi of Useful Idiots, great name for a podcast she's also as you know a comedian and the host of her own podcast the katie helper show that means our next guest is the one and only katie helper katie how are you
1: good you good good i don't know if you can see over my shoulder but i have a book by a couple books including one by matt taibbi and one by you
0: oh you oh you do yes that's very cool Wow. You know, I have appreciated the things that you've said about my work, and I've appreciated the fact that you operate without any sense of fear or any real thought about your career. And uh,
1: <laughs> as you can tell, yeah.
0: Yeah. No, no, but that's why we know you. That's why we know you. We love you. We love your podcast. We love your humor because you are so, with reckless abandon. You will just say what needs to be said.
1: You know, the big thing I like to talk about, woke washing, that's the big threat in my opinion is the kind of indirect racism and sexism that we see happening mm. through a lot of policies that are not race, you know, that they're not like de facto or de, they're not de jure de juro racist, but they have impacts that are. And you know, I, this comes up with something like the fight for 15, right? F- $15 right. minimum wage. I mean, people like to separate that as if economic justice isn't related to racial justice or gender right. equality. It's like the majority of people who earn minimum wage are m- women and women of color disproportionately are represented among that group. So, you know, that's just something that I think we have to really be mindful of. And don't be afraid to call out the people who are doing bad things, who are, they're not all going to be straight white men. Now, don't use any language that's at all like gendered or racist, obviously, but like Biden is taking these human shields, putting them in front of him. Jen Psaki, you know, uh, Simone Sanders, uh, and this is going to happen. All the people he surrounds himself with, as much as he can, he wants it to be not straight white dudes because he knows it makes it harder for people to criticize them, right? Right. Now, so I, all I'm saying is that we just have to be really honest about this. and And the, and the issue is not like, representation is really, really important. All things being equal, we should, of course, always have someone in power who represents a less represented group. But the policy, like that's what's important. That's really what's important. So it's great to have a non-straight white male vice president. That's great. But I would rather focus on the policies that are affecting the countless powerless women, women of color, people of color. So I just, I guess my, my big thing nowadays is just reminding people to look at the the substance. And again, I'm not dismissing representation. These things are really important, but, but the impact and, and who's impacted by these policies and, you know, watching people like push these, I call it woke washing. That's my term for it, which is when, you know, there's greenwashing when you pretend something's good for the environment and it's not, and there's mm-hmm. pinkwashing when you pretend like Israel pretends that they're really good on LGBTQ rights. Uh, so they can distract from the fact that like, if you're Palestinian, you're shit out of luck, no matter what uh, orientation you are. Yeah. Um, and there's also woke washing, which is when people pretend that it's, it's sexist or racist to question something, or when they try to make, for instance, like rainbow Raytheon bombers uh, or pink, you know, pink uh, missiles. Uh, so, yeah, that's, right. that's what I think is the big, that, I, well, that's what I think the big threat today is, is like economic inequality, economic violence, and the attempt to separate economic justice from racism and sexism.
0: Right, because we're.
1: Oh, you muted yourself again. Michael is trying to give voice. He is silencing himself as a straight white man. He's holding the space.
0: There's we're using StreamYard here, and for some reason, every now and then, the machine automatically mutes me, and I'm like, "Who did that?" It's
1: it's reparations. I'm telling you.
0: Uh, Racism and the mass incarceration system. Uh, That that no, but somebody figured out how to make money off yeah. of racism and how to play off white people's racism so that we can have this mass incarceration system right. where that makes people a lot of money the, the the misogyny and capitalism the way that that works the way we make money off of discriminating yeah. against women is just like slave labor was like wow look at how much work we can get done and not have to pay anybody right with women just think how much, how many billions we save by paying them 20 cents less on the dollar.
1: Yeah. Not to mention when women are at home, you know, it's unpaid, often unpaid labor, but yes, Yes. but yeah, there's obviously there's, um, you know, pay equity issues and um, pay inequality. And, you know, it's not going to be solved by like pantsuit feminism, lean in feminism. Um, None of these issues will be because Basically, I think like Republicans want a top 1%, a straight white male top 1% running the world. And Dems want like a maybe like a, a 10% that's more diverse. But they're still basically doing the same stuff. It's just right. a little bit more representative. And that's I mean, that's not the priority for me for my feminism, at least. The priority yeah. is not just making, uh, I mean, I lament sexism and double standards wherever they exist. And I, I'm someone who does not like Hillary Clinton, but I would never pretend that she didn't face double standards and sexism. But my issue with her is that, like, I cared more about, you know, the women in Honduras who experienced a lovely booming um, femicide industry after the coup that the Obama administration basically pretended it was not a coup and refused to condemn. And because of that, you know, terrible things have happened in Honduras, um, the Iraq right. war uh, you know, she's on the board of Walmart. So these are the women's issues that right. I think
0: are important. And when Hillary, when people like Hillary, people I'm, is a euphemism I'm using. I mean to say when women who are oppressed by an economic and unjust e- economic system um, stand up and say they support capitalism, at that moment, they've said they support a system that can only run by paying women less and by making sure they don't have equal rights, that they don't have the right to be paid the same as the man next to them, all that stuff. Once, you know, I remember in, uh, Trump's State of the Union message, uh, it would have been a year, a year or two, maybe now yeah, it was a year ago when he made that statement, America will never be a socialist country. Right, And. And they cut I like the that Democrat- blend
1: of like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I know. And, uh, it was like, I don't know what that voice was. <laughs> and Trump, yeah. Well, you're you're hurt, you're reminding us of his Germanic roots, yeah. Yes, yeah, Austri- 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 Austri-
0: right. Austrian, uh, Germanic, Austrian. right. They Trump's used to all be the-, the same
1: anyway. I'm being woke about it. I'm not. It's not that they're all the, the same. It's that I'm respecting the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. You're welcome.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yes, because dare dare anybody say anything racist against the Austrians? Yeah. Um, but, I have a lot of leeway there.
1: Leverage,
0: yes, yeah. yes, that's uh, say it through you, me,
1: Michael. If there's any ever anything you want to say against Germans, just come to me and I'll say it for you.
0: Okay. Oh, good. All right. I'm going to take you up on that. Yeah. But they cut away to the Democrats in the State of the Union on the Democratic side, and they were all applauding. Oh yeah. They, some of them were standing, and Elizabeth Warren, like this, and I'm like, what?
1: Capitalist to the bones. Capitalist? What? I know. That's the oh. thing that, like, I, I, yeah, we expect this from Republicans, but it would be nice if Democrats didn't actually do this, especially because as we know that all of these policies that Bernie pushed and pushes are policies that are overwhelmingly popular. They're not yeah. fringe. I mean, that's the right. big thing that he did. Like, what Bernie did was reveal more than change public opinion he just revealed the gap between public opinion and the media right. elites and political elites who claim to represent the world and they don't and you know as i would think i was listening to your show earlier today um, when you were talking about how, oh, with Rashida sleep, who's great, who's been on useful oh, yeah. idiots and would love to have you on the Katie Halper show, but, um, great co- conversation on Palestine and also on, you know, the def- uh, minimum wage and how this is a bipartisan issue and it has support. And she had some great line about how we know, like if, if, if the $15 minimum wage were something else, not the $15 minimum wage, but some issue that corporations wanted, of course the Dems would pass it. Like in a heartbeat. Right. And, you know, right. watching Jem Saki was asked if why they were willing to fight harder, the Dems and the Biden administration, for Neera Tandon's uh, confirmation
2: mm-hmm. as
1: OMB director uh, than they were to fight for the $15 minimum wage. And Saki was like, that's really irresponsible, which I don't sh- show me where it's irresponsible. I don't see what's irresponsible. What's irresponsible is the Biden administration and all the like spin that you guys are engaging in. Um, You know, Simone Sanders wouldn't even answer the question on CNN whether or not teachers should be required to be vaccinated. I mean, Mm. it's just to me, this is like just subtle Trump bullshit. It's like they don't lie as quickly. They don't contradict themselves within the same sentence the way that Trump did. And his like thousands of press people who are always, you know, press secretaries who are always replaced and would implode. But it's not that different. And I'm not doing the false equivalency thing, but I think we my big worry with Biden is that people are now let their guards down. They're like, OK, it's back to normal. Oh, good. It's nice. Now we have bombing of of Syria that are that are like that are coots that are, you know, that are not uncouth, that are that are discreet. He doesn't make a big deal out of it. It's like, you know, you don't want like sneaky, you know, that's like, do you want Cambodia? Like, should Biden just pretend it doesn't happen? Should he not even get any? Uh, approval of it even less than he already did so that to me is like the big the big fear and um i think watching honestly the spin the media spin for the the greatest thing about the media under trump besides all the free media they gave him beforehand and all the free media afterwards and during because they just didn't know how to i don't think they knew how to handle him but it was nice that they hated him like i liked an adversarial if ineffective media Mm. we don't have that with biden at all Mm-hmm. Um, and right. yeah, of course, decorum uh, I guess matters, but but I'm just worried that because there is some decorum, people are going to not be aware of what's happening.
0: Right. So what do we do? What do we do? Because I I, I, I listen to your uh, podcast, and um, you just um,
1: na- you got it. You just named the thing. That's what you do. That is that you want world peace. Every time you listen to the Katie Helper show or usual idiots, <laughs> you're you're a download closer.
0: Right. Well, that's what you're. That's your contribution to helping us think about what's going on. But what's the next step? What else do we need to be doing here than just listening to you or me on this podcast? What can people who are listening to this do? Uh, Because a lot of people, in some ways, even though I tell them, you know, you shouldn't give up yet because we we have had some success. It's not maybe the success we would have wanted but you can't say it's not something that if Georgia doesn't tell you anything.
1: Yeah. Right. But look what happened with Georgia. Right. I mean, this is a, not to burst anyone, not to be a downer. No, right? but that's like, your job. Well, yeah, gotta be that's, a, someone's got to be the downer. Right. That's you. Um, so when You're looking for a downer. Go to Katie helper. But um, no, I mean, the one they one of the
0: funniest women in America. When yeah, you want thank it. you. Be really down about what's going on.
1: Well, you got to, it. it's like laugh instead of cry or laugh and cry. But right. um, I mean, look at what Georgia did. They guarant- they, pro- they ran on the $2,000 check and then by they're not even doing that. The Dems aren't even doing that. And I, you know what I, I have to say? I think one of the most important things right now is to remember slash learn. And have you had Thomas Frank on the show?
0: I have, yes. Yeah,
1: you have, right. So, so Listen Liberal is like one of the most illuminating books for right. me. Um, and... You know, the, we, we have to remember, and this is a big part of Listen Liberal, is we have to remember that it's not that Dems can't do these things and would like to, but their hands are tied. It's that they don't want to do them. And that right. is a really imp- I think that's the biggest part. The, one of the most important things about the Bernie Sanders movement was that he, first of all, he normalized outrage because he, and drew attention to how what, what's abnormal is the status quo right? It used to be reverse. Like, outrage and anger were weird and abnormal, and we should just accept the status quo. And then thanks to a movement that he really, you know, and he is, I like to call him a crotchety mensch tradition that my people have. <laughs> but you know, he's like, a little curmudgeon but he's angry about all the right things. And then you have right. these pearl clutching, pearl clutchers like, oh, I don't understand why he's so angry. Like, why does he have to yell all the time? So like, if you're angrier at Sanders being angry than you are the things he's being angry at, you really need to do some, like, spiritual, <laughs> like, uh, soul-searching, but yeah. I think that the, the one of the most important things to remember or to be aware of is that it's not, there's it's so tempting for the left to say and think, it just has to be that way. We'd love it another way, and it's tempting for the left who doesn't, there's like, there are two groups of people. There's the, the disingenuous and then the people who don't really know, and so the disingenuous people are like, you know, Biden or or Saki saying that their hands are tied, they can't really do anything about $15, pretending it's some parliamentary thing the parliamentarian who, by the way, Republicans fire their parliamentarian. So, like, let's that's be right. real. Right. Um, and that's a really important thing. Remembering that it's not about ability. There is it, there the will exists among the people. It doesn't exist among the media elites and the political elites. And there is like a feedback loop. Right. Because you have politicians go on these shows and the people on the shows. I think half the time they they, they know that these things are possible. They know Medicare for all is possible. And they are pretending that it's not possible and half the time they themselves are drinking the kool-aid or some mixture of all of them but um i I think that that is really important the idea that there, the myth of like of the pragmatic none of these things are pragmatic it's not pragmatic to not make people earn a higher minimum wage that's not pragmatic it's like it's it's a really dangerous tool that they use it's this kind of neoliberal technocracy pseudo expertise where they pretend that it's just about Oh, you know, we'd love we'd love to be able to do it this way. But unfortunately, the Republicans X, Y, Z. The Republicans don't ever do that. They they come, you know, the Dems show up to a gunfight with a knife. But the the big lie is that they don't have guns. I don't want, OK, I can't believe I'm saying this with Bowling for Columbine. But like, forget the gun, <laughs> problematic gun nature. The point is that Dems show up with their hands, one hand high, tied behind their back, but not because they... They got it, was tied. They tied it, or they asked someone to tie it behind their back to use a less, you know, violent image, just kind of a weird one, if I'm being honest. But
0: what I want you to do is tell us why, as you say, you know, the Republicans, when the parliamentarian right. doesn't do what they want them to do, they fire him. Democrats yeah, but- don't do that. Also, the last time we got a minimum wage increase ages ago, it was part of a defense bill, right? Which had nothing to do with a minimum wage, yet they didn't care. They just put it in there and they said, vote on it.
1: Right. Yeah, well, because they, I mean, not to sound like a, a cliche, but, you know, and your viewers probably and listeners know this, but, you know, the Dems are beholden to a lot of the same donors that the Republicans are and the same interests Um, not, I mean, there's some difference, but certainly not enough difference. Um, there needs to be a lot more of a difference. So I, I refer and I defer to wonks on this issue, but you can see I had Matt Brunigan. He talked about how, you know, all the ways that they, that Kamala Harris knows the law more than a parliamentarian. I mean, she was a lawyer, did a lot of bad things with that degree, but she is a lawyer. So it's, it's, it's always a question of, you know, where there's a will, there's a way as corny as that is. It's true often. And we've seen that. And, um, you know, I do think that the it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition, the Nira Tandon versus the Fight for Fifteen, because a lot of people are talking about Tandon. How look, she should, her her mean tweets about Republicans were like probably the most redeeming things about Nira Tandon. If I'm being honest, that's that's great. But here's the thing about Nira's Twitter presence that I think is actually relevant, and I've done some shows where I'll read them on, on. You can see on my YouTube show, I I have some visuals too. She pretends to care about online civility and um about you know fighting misogyny and hate and vitriol and she herself engages in very combative and mean-spirited tweets but that's one thing the other thing that she does is that she has an army she Mm. calls it an army she's told jim zogby on twitter if you try this bs again because he said something remotely critical of cory booker she's like an army will rise up or an army yeah. will rise up against you. And she refers to people in her army. She writes like, oh, I, you know, happy birthday, my friend. You're a treasure. And these are people in her Twitter army who say yeah. things like, um, Bernie Sanders is a fake fucking Jew. Um, I want to cut off his, fing- his wagging finger. I mean, violent stuff. They said violent stuff to a lot of women, sexual stuff. It's disgusting. And so, now, why do I bring that up? It's because that is... What we see Tandon do in the real world is something she does online, too. And this goes back to the same thing that we really have to be vigilant about, which is that she weaponizes identity politics and weaponizes lived experience. You know, she talks about how she grew up in Section 8 housing. Mm-hmm. and on, on when it comes to twitter she weaponizes civility politics and so okay the reason she i'm bringing tweeted, up, she
0: tweeted awful things about me oh yeah she just made up crap or just yeah or weird stuff that when people read it they're like who is she she wrote in uh in 2016 that michael moore is hoping that trump wins yeah like what it, is that i that's, don't even know what is that, that means I mean,
1: you first of all you you worked harder for like <laughs> for uh against trump than she ever did she she probably just only helped trump honestly but you actually were you know out there after bernie didn't win doing a you know the the noble thing of trying to get trump defeated by these right um, right
0: anyway no, but no, uh, i know but but i, but, I just but, but i never that, get any but attention that aside, to it. yeah
1: that, but the reason that's a, uh, the only reason i think it's interesting and important is because it's a similar thing it's like we It's stunning hypocrisy and and hypocrisy, who cares about hypocrisy to some extent because it's all over. It's like when people are saying the Republicans are being hypocrites because they're going after mean tweets and look at Trump. It's like, yeah, of course they're hypocrites. Like Trump, that was his whole whole brand. In fact, he had like a hypocrisy get out of jail free card because he didn't claim to have any moral consistency. He would just do one thing and another thing. So it was almost like it, it was a built in. Um, freedom to do whatever he wants. But like, of course, since when do we think that the Dems are held to the standard that Trump is? So like, that's stupid to point out that, oh, these Republicans are are not being in good faith when they stop Tandon's uh, nomination. Like, of course they're not. But the thing that's interesting is that, you know, Tandon and all of her supporters, watch this, there's definitely a talking point with lived experience. It's like weird Stepford Wives, everyone's saying it, her lived experience, lived experience. And they talk about the fact that she grew up in Section 8 housing, and that is really relevant. And it would be very um, admirable if she, because of her experience growing up um, in the face of a lot of economic adversity, if because of that, and racism and, and sexism, if she then, because of that experience, were committed to making sure that there were programs like Section 8 housing, there was a welfare state, a robust welfare state for other people. Right. But what she does is she grows up, she escapes from this poverty, and she then tries to condemn everyone who's still there to not having the programs that she had because she tries to cut things and she, try, you know, she pushes austerity. And in a weird way, it's even more dangerous than when the Republicans do it because when a Republican does it, everyone knows that they don't like the welfare state. But when neoliberals do it and weaponize identity politics and talk about being that, you know, young woman who knows how hard it was and they got through thanks to grit. It's like it's not all grit, lady. There's a lot of people of grit. And if you don't have the actual like welfare, the safety net, you may your grit may not get you through. Anyway, that's another that's like the American dream. uh, Uh, But
0: Katie, I've I've just been informed that a friend of yours has just entered uh, the green room. Nice. And she's going to come out here. And please, uh, everybody who are is watching or listening to this, welcome the former national press secretary for the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, a contributing editor at Current Affairs magazine, and now the co-host of the podcast called Bad Faith, Brianna Joy Gray. Brianna, are you there? Hi, I'm yes.
3: here. <laughs> Hi, Michael. Hey, Katie. Helps. How hey, how are pleasure. you? I'm doing well, thank
0: you. I haven't seen
1: you in like a week or something, maybe two. <laughs> but he's a, a frequent guest on the Katie Halbert Show live stream. Yes. One of the uh,
0: faves, yeah. Did you consult, uh, Brianna, did you consult with Katie before d- deciding to do a podcast uh, <laughs> in terms of knowing, knowing everything's involved, what's involved? Because maybe if I had talked to her first, I, I would have uh, maybe at least paused for a minute to think about, uh, if you, if you, if you want to do a good job at this, uh, you must... <laughs> You must put in a lot of time.
3: Well, you know, I didn't because I was Katie, but this, you know, this is my third podcast in life. So I was, um, <laughs> I was on
0: your podcast when you had the Bernie podcast. Right. Yeah, that's right. Was there a that's podcast right. before that?
3: Yeah. As an oh, anonymous yeah. citizen, I had my own uh, podcast called Someone's Wrong on the Internet, which I stripped from the Internet when I joined the campaign. because oh, yeah. so I didn't feel like Bernie Sanders would, should have to answer for my opinion on the. Uh, oscar-winning movies or any of the other
0: so (laughs) but what would have been the if somebody had found this out that you had this anonymous podcast pre bernie what what did you say on any given episode that would have caused a ruckus
3: well we had nuanced conversations about difficult subjects right which doesn't really fly in a political atmosphere when you have to your guys' earlier conversation, folks like Nira Tandon out in the world trying to pretend uh, to cast even good things in a bad light. So I think our our most popular episode was about the Me Too movement and trying to tease out some of the nuances there and why we weren't having a bigger conversation about what accountability and rehabilitation looks like that would enable people to be more honest about the bad acts that were coming out at a rapid pace at the time. Mm. So probably something between that or the episode where we talked about... uh, the Shape of Water, and there was a lot of conversation about the oh, ethics yeah. of having sex with a fish.
1: Right? And can what, you what imagine you... Bernie being like, look, I refuse to comment on the fish-human intercourse that was depicted in that movie, and my press secretary's review of that movie in no way represents my campaign's views on that. And in fact, I think it's overrated and it was a little contrived, and I expect more from that director, but... Katie, <laughs> you so kill
0: true. me. <laughs> you know, I can actually hear him saying that. Uh, and sounding <laughs> unbelievable but um can i go back to uh, what katie and i were talking about um when you were there in the in the green room there um uh, brianna mm-hmm. near a tandem. and i don't want to spend a lot of time on her because i think we should be talking about other things but she would post the most vile tweets about attacking uh people on the left anybody that would disagree with centrist democrats was evil And, um, and you're right, she had this army and they would, when it would be announced like, Oh, Michael Moore is coming up in a half hour here on MSNBC. Oh my God. The hosts of the show would be inundated with these tweets, uh, from the sort of what I call the tandem Democrats. And, um, and, and they were just like, you must never have him on again. You must not, this is, and, and, you know, I don't know if anybody started listening to it, but I remember in the commercial breaks being told we're under heavy artillery here from <laughs> Democrats. we wh- yeah. having you or Bernie supporters on.
3: Yeah, every time you went on TV, you would trend on Twitter yeah. before you even appear to open your mouth. You know, the promo right. would say, and Michael Moore coming up at eight. And immediately. Yeah.
0: Negatively the, trend though, negatively. yeah ne-
3: Negatively trend. And the yeah. idea that there existed some cohort of Bernie bros was of course, most hurtful because there did exist an army that was pretty vicious, um, pretty explicitly racist, ironically. Recall that this is an overlapping um, cohort with the, the donut, the uh, chocolate yeah. donut crew. So That's a lot good. of these people have cho- like donut emojis in there. Names the same way that you know a socialist might have a red rose in their name, and the donut is meant to be evocative of a moment where Senator Nina Turner was disrespected after trying to get her, you know, the progressive uh, viewpoints uh, heard at a uh, unity was it a unity commission yeah uh, meeting. meeting? Yeah. Mm. So they they basically told her she couldn't enter and then put bottles of water and donuts outside for her and her supporters. And she gave an impassioned speech saying this isn't about donuts. I'm not going to be like bought off by donuts. I like these are the things that matter substantively to millions of working people, etc. And A lot of folks decided that they were going to deride that moment, which if anything was a moment of real integrity for Senator Turner and a real moment of shame for the people who her from the conversation and put donut emojis in their, their handles to mock her. So this is true. You can see, you can see there's this choice So the same people who are are Mm -hmm. pretending that there's this racist horde of, of Bernie Bros have actively chosen to identify themselves with a like very particular brand of misogynoir that Senator Turner um, experiences online, and so he does too, of course. Well, and
0: racist the, the chocolate donut.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah.
0: Right?
3: yeah, So the the hypocrisy, um, you know, the, the hypocrisy stings. I think none of us would really care. We, the Bernie Bro narrative wasn't really hurting. I mean, Bernie. I mean, we were we were doing very well until. <laughs> uh, you know, the moderates all dropped out and um, Barack Obama chose Joe Biden to be the next president of the United States. But in this moment, now that Neera Tanden is pretending to be, um, you know, indifferent to online Um, shenanigans and to say that it's just twitter and it doesn't matter and yada 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 after she was the ringleader of stirring up antagonism against bernie sanders on the basis of anonymous tweeters and double on top of that the fact that he she actually has a relationship with the people who are doing um aggressive misogynistic anti-semitic tweets ableist tweets on her behalf whereas obviously bernie sanders bernie sanders wouldn't wish the uh the, the the head of the New York Times happy birthday, but <laughs> there's this implication that he has his relationship with the t- tweeters. Miriam Tanen is actively saying happy birthday, my friend, and throwing her yeah. arms around these people right. in pictures, and she disclaims that relationship or that it matters. So that's where we are. Yeah, and and the reason that
1: I mean I was not as eloquently as Bree, of course, trying to make this point, and I I didn't get it this far to wrap it up, but the the parallel also I think is that is the weaponization of it. Like it reveals the willingness to just weaponize really terror, like like take advantage of really terrible things. Like there is online abuse. Uh, there's obviously racism and sexism right. and there's misogynist language and, and racist language. And then to pretend that you are on the side of the people at the receiving end of that, but actually, actually elevate people who engage in that, that reveals the same kind of disingenuous hypocrisy that is revealed when she invokes her growing up, her her life being on Section Eight housing, and then uses that to at the same time push for policies that actually cut those programs. So that's I guess that to me is like what's what's stunning about it. Um, the hypocrisy in itself isn't surprising or interesting, but it's kind of it's, it. It's an invitation for people to look at what is the real motive. Like, what's the real motive of invoking your childhood? What's the real motive in, in um, portraying all Bernie supporters as sexist, racist? And it's really to push policies. It's to try to kneecap the left by presenting the left as this monolithic, racist, sexist, problematic group of people. Um, and it's also try, to try to sanitize your, you know, really craven, venal, um, punitive policies that you're pushing when you're near a near Tandon or a Biden or hillary clinton amen
0: so politically if we had yeah. just a few minutes left where would you spend your attention here because there's we've talked about so much tonight on on rumble um but i thought uh, of course each of you uh bring a whole different um, uh, viewpoint uh, that i enjoy greatly and and so i was hoping that you know when i get on there i'm gonna let him have it or mike's just a little too squeaky happy right now or something i don't know what it is you know he he got his second shot so you know
1: oh He's congratulations
0: like, yeah. I, t- I have to tell you mentally i have done a 180 yeah since getting that second shot the other day i'm like even though you know you're not totally out of the woods for two or three weeks after you get that second shot. The full immunity, it does not take place right away. So, you know, you still have to be careful. But I just feel like I've just been shown the light at the end of some tunnel. And I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, you guys are young. So I'm just curious how this has impacted your life because, man, I'd be pissed at your age if I had a year ripped from me. You know, taking a year from me now, once you're past 50, 60 years old, you're you're like oh, yeah fuck it I've you know I've had enough of these, the next one's just coming up some pretty spare, much the, spare years. Yeah, yeah right exactly and and it's not that I still don't have things to do I got a lot on my plate and a lot in my head uh, that I think can make a difference. Nonetheless, um, uh, I'm just curious how you guys maybe it's this is see this, this that, I don't know if this is a political question but I'm curious because uh, I know both of you I'm just curious how you are holding up how you've come through this. Uh, And what are you looking forward to the most once we're on the other side of this pandemic? Um,
3: I I think that relatively, uh, I'm doing fine. I I think that I am the only, I, I take the quarantine more seriously than I probably should and like literally don't leave my studio apartment. But part of that is because. I'm a Leo and an extroverted in some ways, but also very much enjoy a great deal of downtime in between. And the worst thing about my periods of sloth before COVID was the peer pressure to be out enjoying a sunny day or socializing. And now that external pressure doesn't exist at all. In fact, I'm doing a patriotism by staying yeah. inside. So um, I'm, you know, it's probably not the best habit. Uh, and of course, the things that I miss most are actual vacations like being able to get mm. on a plane and go somewhere right. and like meet up with friends and stuff um and i do miss the atmosphere of a candlelit restaurant uh downtown new york um in walking distance uh dishes i don't have to clean and all of that but you know i i feel very lucky in the grand scheme of things oh also you know being able to not have to do a virtual video dating scenario oh, i don't love oh, that yeah. Aspect. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. other than that i'm a happy camper all things considered
0: okay so so speaking of dating
3: mm-hmm.
0: um governor cuomo how long yeah. do you give him oh, you, what we have an right. office pool going on right now of everybody has picked the day that he will resign uh i'm, I'm so i'm just curious what your thoughts are uh, uh about uh, uh, the governor and if you want to get in on the betting,
1: what do you think, Katie? I don't know. I mean, it's definitely uh, was not going to be the thousands of elderly people he he bet uh, he like sacrificed so that his donors could you know it, mm, yeah that should, have iced, that should yeah, have iced them that should have iced them so there. it's yeah it's it's just a question I guess of how um, the more local the the politician I guess the easier it is to actually look into um, sexual uh, harassment or. Um, uh, misconduct allegations. So, you know, if you were mayor, I'd be more optimistic, but the fact that he's a governor, I'm more optimistic than I would be if he were a, a presidential, you know, a senator, let's say, or a presidential nominee. So, that's mm-hmm. where I'd place him, but what what do you think, Bree?
3: My position is always unfortunately probably to start in a kind of a cynical place. Uh yeah. I I'm surprised the presumption is that he's going to step down. Right. People have weathered a lot worse as we've all acknowledged Frankly, what not that we need to be ranking what's worse or bad, but like the stuff that had already transpired with respect to him sentencing all of these elderly people uh, to death and limiting liability and all of that was should have been enough. Right. And obviously the nature of um, allegations of sexual misconduct tends to grab headlines more than sentencing people's grandparents and uncles to death uh unfortunately so it's going to be more difficult for him to warm his way out but i could see a world where he just stays out of the yeah media he he adopts the biden line which biden has already reissued which is right. that every claim needs to be thoroughly investigated and women need to be heard right <laughs> So long as you're heard it doesn't yeah. matter if there's any accountability you right. know stick stick some um but Mr. Potato had ears on the, on the side of any inanimate object, and you you are heard, right, woman. Right. The sound waves were, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Well, because one thing you know about this, I think, in, in terms of the serial nature of this sort of thing, if it's never – if if he really is that, it's not one woman, it's not two women, it's not three women. It's, you know, there's a, uh, probably a lifelong
1: um, – Yeah, but I think that sometimes can be used against, like, you know, you never know if – someone could do something bad and then have like a wake up a eureka moment or a, out of self-interest it doesn't have to be a moral thing I guess it some th- there's a slight I think danger with that that presumption because then what if you are someone who either was assaulted or harassed and either no one else wants to come forward because they've seen what's been done to you
0: then I mean, because somebody did it only once Right. And then, yeah. that, then that or,
1: or they've done it multiple times, but no one else no, wants to come forward.
0: It. So you think it's not he doesn't have multiple yes. things. But
1: also there are going to statistically yeah. be people who only do it once. Um,
0: um, thanks for giving me your your uh, two cents on this, uh, because um, um, it's it's a it's a discussion we should continue to have, um, because it's a lot of people give the liberal answer but they don't really necessarily it doesn't seem like so many other things we've discussed tonight um, they don't really believe in it they don't really want to fight it whether it's the $15 an hour minimum wage or Mm. um, you know uh, nobody everybody wants to turn the other way and nobody wants to think about how uh, this president who I voted for uh, on his 37th day in office bombed another country Uh, so it's um these are the terrible truths. Sometimes that we have to face, um, and uh, and to not talk about them, uh, I can tell you from history, will do us no good, yeah. and uh, we will suffer as a result of it. And and you should listen to Bad Faith whenever it's on, yeah. uh, with uh, with uh, Brianna Joy Gray and uh, Virgil Texas, and um and also to Katie's two podcasts, the Katie Helper Show. And the one she does with Matt Taibbi, Useful Idiots.
3: Michael, I also was told by Virgil that uh, he wanted me to say how much he loves you and your show, and admires you, and wants says he would be happy to be a guest. Okay, a, I will his have feelings are a little hurt that I've been on twice and he's never been. been on. Look,
1: he's not a you, he's a, a a dude. You got to work twice as hard. That's yeah. Michael's policy. He's a man of color. I know he is an MOC, but he doesn't usually cycle. But that, wait so a minute,
0: yeah, hey, Basil true. wasn't Virgil was there when we were in New Hampshire? He was on on the podcast, right?
1: <laughs> he was sick actually. Yeah.
0: Oh, he, he was, was sick. sick that day. Oh, right. Yeah. We did we did a thing with all the the Chapo uh, mm-hmm. people there in New and during the New Hampshire primary. Okay, definitely I'll have him on. He he first of all, he has a sick day that he's owed.
1: Yeah.
0: On our <laughs> on our podcast. So so uh, yes, I will make this up to him. Tell him definitely, and thank you both of you uh, for participating you. in our little twenty-five million celebration.
1: Yeah, uh, congratulations oh, really. again.
0: Yeah, yeah, but thank you both of you. Please keep doing what you're doing. Um, I, I I love listening to your podcast, uh, and I I love your fearlessness about this uh, because when I listen to you, I know. And I, know I said this to Katie earlier. It's so refreshing to listen to somebody who doesn't put their career first. That you're not whatever you're saying into the microphone, you're not also thinking how will this help me yes, become a reg- professional pundit.
3: Regrettably, get- that's true. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. Yes, <laughs> I know. Thank God. <laughs> I know
0: your parents are listening to this and going, "Mike, don't it's encourage that."
3: behind me. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I think I think that the world will be a better place if you stay the way you are. And you as people will be better off staying the way you are, so that's my two cents of encouragement. Thank you very much, Brianna Joy Gray and Katie Helper, and um, and I will see both of you soon. Before we go any further, I want to again thank our underwriter for this episode of Rumble Netflix, and thank them for providing us with one great film after another this year. And the film that I want to highlight right now in thanking them is they, this year, gave us the incredible The Trial of the Chicago 7. It is absolutely one of my favorite films of the year. Uh, It's the kind of film you want to see a second time, which I already have. It, It was written and directed by the great Aaron Sorkin. And it's certainly one of the most celebrated films of this year. The story surrounds the 1968 Democratic National Convention that took place in Chicago. And of course, during the Vietnam War, a whole bunch of things are going on. It's the it's the year that Martin Luther King is assassinated, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated. Tens of thousands of protesters had decided to come together, to come to Chicago, and have their voices heard. At the time, there was a Democrat in the White House, Lyndon Johnson, and he was sending hundreds of thousands of young Americans to Vietnam, many of whom were coming back in a casket to fight in a war that nobody was quite sure what it was about. And a huge, huge protest movement had erupted against the war. And they decided to have a peaceful protest at the 1968 Democratic Convention. It turned out that once they arrived, the Chicago police and the National Guard and other ideas. What was later described by historians as a police riot, not a riot of protesters, but a police riot. The Chicago police went berserk and committed thousands of acts of violence against these peaceful and unarmed protesters. The organizers of the protest, including Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden, Bobby Seal, were arrested and charged with conspiracy to incite a riot. <laughs> the police were the ones who were committing the riot, and the trial that followed ended up being one of the most notorious trials in American history. This movie has an incredible cast. I mean, seriously, everybody, you've gotta see this film. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen plays Abby Hoffman. Eddie Redmayne plays Tom Hayden, Bobby Seal of the Black Panther Party, is played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. Man, an incredible cast. It also includes Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Mark Rylance, Frank Langella, Michael Keaton, Jeremy Strong, can you believe this? John Carroll Lynch, Alex Sharp. But of course, if you were an actor, you'd want to be in this film because it's so brilliant, so smart, and that's no surprise because it was written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. It has already won the Golden Globe uh, this year for Best Screenplay. The film is rightfully being recognized by everyone on the awards circuit, including the Golden Globes, BAFTA, Screen Actors Guild, Directors Guild, Writers Guild, Producers Guild, you're getting the gist of this, right? American Film Institute, and many, many others. Maybe the most acclaimed film of the year. Aaron Sorkin's screenplay and his direction tells a powerful, relevant story for right now about injustice, racial inequality, and the noble pursuit of protest against a noxious establishment and a government that is in the wrong. So listen, friends, if you haven't seen The Trial of the Chicago 7, please, I urge you to check it out on Netflix. And I'll have a link to the film right here On the description page of my podcast and again i thank netflix for supporting my voice for supporting this podcast for being our underwriter today and also for backing wonderful writers and directors like aaron sorkin and making absolutely outstanding films like the trial of the chicago seven We're back here to close out uh, tonight with uh, Sam Riddle. Uh, he is the host of Riddle at Random, which is on every morning on Superstation 910 AM in Detroit, Michigan. I've known Sam since I was probably 17 years old. He's just a few years older than me, but uh, he's well known in the state of Michigan as one of the black student leaders on both the campuses of Michigan State and the University of Michigan in the 1960s. He is a Vietnam era veteran, came back to Flint after serving uh, in the army and went back to school in Ann Arbor, went to law school there and used his law degree to help do more organizing and more political activism uh, throughout the state of Michigan. He was a co-founder with me of my newspaper in Flint, the Flint Voice, and his is a voice I believe that needs to be heard as it's always been heard in Michigan. But I want people to hear him across the country and across the world. We don't usually get to hear voices unfiltered like Sam's. And I'm fortunate to have him with us here as the, my final guest on our 25 million download celebration. Sam, are you there?
2: Oh, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. It's time to keep you waiting. But well, one of the most interesting things I've seen. When I listened to you today and also just reviewed some of your previous shows, Michael, I too, despite Tuskegee, I took my first Moderno hit at a Meyer store. The same Meyer family that gave us Michael Moore, that Republican congressman that voted to impeach Trump. That's right. Who, who freed Kwame when these phony ass white liberals wouldn't do it. 28 years was too many. Trump did free Kwame, not that it justifies anything Trump's ever done, but it meant something to a lot of the streets in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And see, in Detroit, what we're dealing with is almost diametrically opposed to a lot of the conversation I've heard today. See, in Detroit, the folks in Detroit have been subjected to one bitch slap after another. Whether it's a governor that's held in high esteem by much of the uh liberal, so-called progressive white folks uh, and, and their uh, jack leg handkerchief-head, uh, Negro enablers of the status quo. Uh, this is the same governor in Michigan, Michael, that said there was no data to justify keeping the water on for America's blackest and poorest city. And then the coronavirus pandemic hit that literally turned Detroit into a slaughterhouse. We were the ones filling the body bags out of proportion. Right. And they kept playing these PR games with us. Right now, last data showed, and it's increased since then, only 3.7% of the people taking shots were black. And mm. uh, some of wow. that, uh, and it wasn't just because of hesitancy, uh, it, it, it was about availability. It was about being able to get to where the shots were being given. It was about the fact that not only has poverty been criminalized, but poverty has resulted in deprivation of these shots. I I like to think that's being changed even as I speak. Matter of fact, I got my shot at a Meyer store, as I said earlier, and I've got to take my second maternal shot. And I don't know, I just, when I listen to all these political discussions, I I couldn't help but think about the reality of, of a Detroit, of a Flint. See, there we look almost bemused and our friend Dan Kildee, for example, whom I love, uh, but we look at the Congress people in Washington, mm-hmm. many of them talking speakers if they should be awarded medals for enduring the fear of that January the 6th, but what those congressional representatives felt in Washington with that mob, that mob of insurrectionists, every day the east and west side of Detroit and the north end of Flint, knows that same fear as they huddle, held hostage behind those bars, barred up windows and doors because of the, again, uh, the poverty that results in so much crime. Every day, every week, 24-7, folks are held hostage to fear. The fear that the congressional folks felt in Washington is felt every day throughout black and brown America. So folks just kind of smile and look at what's occurring and, and, and just shake their head because they're going back to a reality where the pit bull is the security force. They know when they pick up the phone, the police ain't coming. They're not coming. Not soon enough. Not soon enough. And the Capitol Police couldn't come. The National Guard didn't come for whatever reason. Well, that's the ugly reality of the streets of Detroit, of South Central Los Angeles, of East St. Louis. Or Washington, D.C., which is a black city. Yeah, that's what what I'm saying. See, we get subjected to a form of a bitch slap 24-7 when it happens to congressional representatives. It's, oh, woe is us. But hell, it's woe is us 24-7. And the only reason I I, I speak like that is because I think, in listening to the uh, show, I was listening to Ellsberg, And of course we remember when Ellsberg's hair was dark and seems like not that long ago. And I look at him and now he's approaching 90 years of age. And I think the older we are, the more cynical we become about the reality. You know, we we elected a president that didn't receive many votes for himself. He got the votes because we didn't want Trump. I voted for Biden, not because I like Biden. I know Biden's history enough to wonder how I could ever have voted for him. But I did because the the only option was Donald Trump, and we wanted Trump gone, just gone. But when we look at what's facing us right now, Michael Moore, I got to tell you, you know, we didn't elect Joe Biden to start unleashing bombs. We elected Joe Biden to to, to give us $15 an hour, livable wages, to get rid of student debt, we didn't elect him to drop bombs. We, we just didn't do it. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm just a little cynical about this guy. And while we want to be cheery and we want to see the rose petals on the road, we've also got to keep the feet to the pedal and keep this Biden-Harris administration honest because their history is very clear, both of their histories, uh Is beset with uh, mass incarceration and, and anything but looking out for the underclass of America, and, and, and we have to uh, deal with that. And when we look at the hit job they did do on 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 Bernie and whatnot, I hope Bernie just keeps fighting and doesn't cave in. I, I hope AOC, Rashida, the Squad, and others keep fighting. But right now, those progressives are going to find themselves isolated more and more, and they'll be catering more to a, uh, to, to someone uh, who's more of a Republican than anything out of West Virginia. And we can't allow that type of individual, that type of ideology to uh, mute, mute those uh, 82 million people or so that voted for Joe Biden. I, I don't know. I just I'm, I'm just real cynical about what is uh, ahead of us, but there is good news. The University of Michigan basketball team is rated number <laughs> two in the nation. Oh, we, fr- we <laughs> finally went
0: three. up. We finally went up to two.
2: <laughs> yeah, I went up to two a, 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 as we speak. But uh, <laughs> and, and Cuomo, think about it. Cuomo is a democratic version. Uh, 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 of trump in terms of these behavior patterns and all he's got to do you say he may resign but if he uses trump as a role model he'll just stonewall it weather the storm impeach him if you will see what's there but if he weathers the storm i believe he'll still be there now if, if you beat him up so bad that he says i gotta go it's just too much that isn't what Bill Clinton did. Right. All I'm saying is that <laughs> Mr. Grabham, Trump, is probably looking back, smirking like hell, because there's no bloodbath like a New York blood bath. You'll see De Blasio in. You got a good man down, stomping, kicking. That's what the mayor says. That's how the Democratic Party behaves. I just hope mm-hmm. he doesn't come back to harness in different federal races down the road, including the next presidential one. But New York is usually, as you know, safely for the Democrats. But right now, I mean, the uh, sharks smell blood in the water, and it's Cuomo. Right. And the guy, there's no question about it. He's, As the streets say, he's a dog, D-A-W-G. Right, right. He's just a straight-up dog, Busted. Busted. We keep organizing. We got we got our, our, our children to work with, our children's children to work with. And what I've learned now as an elder is that some of our role is just to, in the background, not get in the way of emerging leadership. One problem folks have as they mature is they get in the way of emerging leadership. We've got to grow, nurture that leadership. If you see the squad, growing and maturing in the halls of the US Congress. Just because you have 30 years of seniority doesn't mean that you try to stifle them, help them learn to work the system, but don't get in the way. But what happens is folks with seniority in Congress, seniority in the streets, seniority in the political parties, they tend to get in the way and try to stifle emerging leadership.
0: Right, right. When,
2: when, when I look at you, I look at myself, I believe that our role is to nurture this emerging leadership, but above all, not get in the way.
0: Not get in the Stay way. Get out
2: of the way. Yeah. That, that's all. That's Sam, all.
0: thanks uh, for having the last word here on our, our podcast uh, today. Oh, you know, and um, thank
2: you for enduring, and thank you. All of us that <laughs> made it 25 million. Think about that, yeah. that's why you did this show. Yeah. 25 million is one hell of an accomplishment. 25 million downloads because you're saying something, people are listening, you let them speak and you've got a platform for folks that would not have a platform, but for you. So to you, I say, I love you, Michael Moore. Congratulations on the 25 million, and we'll get 25 more million in the pocket for you.
0: Thank you, Sam. It's very heartening, and I do appreciate everybody who's been listening uh, this past year, and it and it tells me how much more uh, work we have in front of us, but if we do it together, we'll succeed. Uh, on our own, not so much, uh, but uh, thank you for being there, always being there, part of the fight. Uh, please come back on uh, in the second year here of Rumble, um, and, and make, I want your voice heard.
2: Okay, love you, man. Take it easy. Love you, too. All right, thank take care. You, Basil. Okay.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Well, that's our podcast uh, for today. Thank you very much, uh, everybody, for uh, tuning in, and I will be back with you uh, in a few days. Until then, let me thank our executive producer. Basil Hamden, our editor, Nick Quaz, all the people who contribute and help me, my friends, my family, and others. It's been a great first year or so here. We've reached many people around this earth that we live on. Thank you for those of you who have written to me, who've left voicemails. I encourage others who have not done that to do that. I listen to every voicemail I read every email and you can email me at the link that's right here on the podcast page mike at michaelmoore.com and you can click on the link down below here and send me a voicemail I'd love to hear your thoughts your ideas your reaction to Rumble all of that is so welcomed so please do that for me if you can email or voicemail and I will see you soon. Thank you, everybody. I'm Michael Moore, and this is Rumble.